It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. This week, we're turning to the most important story in the world today, the unfolding crisis in Israel and Gaza. Obviously, this is a particularly complicated and controversial subject. So what we wanted to do today is not to focus too much on the events themselves, but on the wider geopolitical situation, which helps us understand what is happening and why it's so important, not just for ordinary Israelis and Palestinians, but for all of us. So the question we're trying to answer today is, What does the unfolding war between Hamas and Israel tell us about the world geopolitically today? And what has changed since the last time Israel was subject to a devastating surprise attack 50 years ago this month? It is an all-out war. That's how Israeli Defense Minister Moshe Dayan describes an invasion of the Golan Heights and the east bank of the Suez by Syria and Egypt. The surprise attacks came early this morning in the air and on the ground. The Egyptians apparently have taken control of at least a portion of the east bank of the Suez. Diane says it would take several days to drive them out of there, attributing the initial Egyptian successes to the thin line of Israeli defenses in that area. More than 700 Israelis are now feared dead after unprecedented attacks by Hamas militants. It represents the biggest loss of life in a single day in Israeli history. So we're going to spend quite a bit of time in the 1970s in the start of this episode because we think it is particularly important for understanding where we are today. It helps us really understand what's going on and why. But obviously before the 1970s, there's quite a bit of history. So I'm going to just try and quickly race through it before handing over to Helen to bring us up to speed. The state of Israel was born in 1948 and immediately plunged into war. The major Arab states all went to war to stop it happening. The outcome essentially is that Israel survives, Egypt ends up with Gaza, and Transjordan, today's Jordan, ends up with the West Bank, including much of Jerusalem. Israel, though, ends up with about a third more territory than it had 
under the original partition plan agreed by the UN. As part of this war, Palestinians who were living in Israel fled, or many of them fled to the West Bank and Gaza, and Jews across the Middle East were expelled and fled to Israel. So you had this sort of mass movement of people. In one sense, I think you can see this as part of the same wider story of imperial collapse after the First and Second World Wars, of nation states emerging in places where there were once empires. In Israel's case, this is the Ottoman and then British empires. Often these stories involve immense human tragedy, mass movement of people, uneasy borders with minorities left behind. You can see this in the Balkans, obviously, Germany, Poland, Ireland, today's Ukraine. And so that's the same story. That's how to understand, I think, Israel's creation. Yeah. And I think that what we need to do before we get to the 70s is add in two more wars to that, because in a way, the clear point of comparison between the 70s and now is the Yom Kippur War mm-hmm. of 1973. So the, the, the attackers we're going to talk about by Egypt and, and Syria, um, primarily on uh, Israel. But this is really the fourth war between Israel and the Arab states. The first being the one that you've already talked about, Tom, around Israel's creation in 1948. The second of them comes in 1956 Mm. with the Suez crisis, something that we've talked about before, but not from Israel's perspective. We've looked at it, we've talked about it a little bit from Britain and France's um, perspective. And what was at issue here is Israel having access to the Suez Canal Mm. being blocked by Egypt and also a body of water, the Straits of Tehran, which are going to be important in 1967, which basically allows Israel access to the the Red Sea. And it was for these reasons that Israel went to war in 1956 um, with the British um, and the French, invading Sinai in order to open the Straits. Now, after that war, Egypt was supposed by the United Nations to, to keep the Straits of Tehran open. It didn't always happen in, in practice. And that then became the context for the 1967 mm-hmm. war. The Six-Day War. The Six-Day War, because then um, Israel made clear that if Nasser, that was Egyptian president, were to shut the Straits of Tehran to Israeli shipping, that Israeli government would regard that as a justification for war. Nasser did do that. But it was Israel in 1967 who launched preemptive attacks Mm. on Egypt, using that as the the pretext for the war. And the consequence then in terms of these issues of transit of the 67 war was that the Suez Canal was closed until 1975. Mm. But if we look at it in terms of the territorial picture, the outcome of 1967, then Israel ended up capturing the Sinai Peninsula from which which had been Egypt's it, it was Egypt's territory obviously half of the Golan Heights, mm. Gaza and the West Bank and it also captured oil fields in the Sinai Peninsula. So this was a a, a completely transformative war yeah. from uh, Israel's um, point of um, view. And what we can then see is that that sets up the conditions for the war that will happen in. In 1973, and in some ways, it sets up quite a number of the the territorial conflicts that that, that are still in play today. 
because of the position of Gaza and the West Bank. Yeah, I think the other thing that it does is it transforms Israelis' sense of confidence about their state and its survival, because, you know, that had been under threat up until this point. Uh, and then with this victory, this extraordinary victory, where I think they wipe out much of Egypt's air force to begin with and make these extraordinary territorial gains. From the reading that I've done, you get this sense that there's a feeling that they are, you know, finally secure, you know, and, and it wasn't absurd for them to think that the state was under real threat. You had NASA saying our basic objective will be to destroy Israel and some Saudis say in the event of a conflagration, no Jews whatsoever will survive. So they had seen off this threat, they'd increased their territory and they felt secure. And that's why it's in that context that the 1973 Yom Kippur War was such a shock to the Israeli psyche because it came as a surprise to them. Now, there had been intelligence reports that Israel had a very senior agent in the Egyptian regime who had warned the Israelis that an attack was coming. I think the Jordanians had warned that an attack was coming, but for whatever reason, these didn't get through. And there was this surprise attack on this holy day for the Israelis led to not just a threat to the state, but a sort of, it shook the the Israeli psyche. And it didn't produce the kind of extraordinary victory that 67 had, or the victory in the 1948 war for their creation. It kind of ended in a stalemate, which is not stuck, but from that war until now, there are some people who say Israel hasn't had one of those great victories that it had at the beginning. And the Yom Kippur War is the start of this uh, sense of military difficult, like being in a quagmire that you cannot win these wars militarily. I, I think as well that what we have to start putting in here is the way in which the bigger geopolitical mm. landscape, if you like, had changed even between 1967 and 1973. So under Lyndon Johnson, who'd been American president during the, the Six-Day War, the Americans had been stalwart supporters mm. um, of Israel, as indeed had the British and, and the, the West Germans. And that the Arab members of OPEC had tried to embargo the sale of oil to those three countries on the grounds of their support for Israel. But the United States was then in a position when it could basically provide oil in an emergency, including actually really to Israel itself. By the time we get to 1973, American domestic oil production had peaked. It peaked in 1970, it wouldn't reach that height again until the shale boom in the 2010s. The United States was now on a trajectory where it would become the largest oil importer in the world by the end of the decade. Mm -hmm. And that really, I think, changed American relations with the Arab states. It was clear because of the way in which the, the Soviets had become quite entrenched with the Egyptian government that this was a, a Cold War. It was as well in 1967, but I think that those the interaction between America's own oil needs and the Cold War interacted rather differently in 1973. So what we see in, in October 1973 is the Arab member states uh, of OPEC, first of all, dramatically increasing the price of oil by about 70% on one day, then putting in place production cuts, which meant that the price would, over a four-month period, go up by about 
percent, at least maybe three fifty percent. And after Nixon had asked Congress for a large military aid package for Israel, then the Arab members of OPEC embargoing the sale of oil to the United States, also to to Netherlands and later I think to Portugal and South Africa and Rhodesia. But this meant that I think that the Americans this time round went on a dual strategy, if you like, or for dealing with a crisis, one of which was basically getting Israel to a ceasefire and going to put pressure on Israel to give back Sinai to Egypt, give back at least some of the Golan Heights to Syria, and working to get the Arab states to take the oil embargo, to end the oil embargo against the United States, which they finally did in March of 1974. Because the the um, goals of the two states that had attacked Israel were quite different, I think. The Egyptians really were trying to get a sense of pride back and get the territory they had lost. They wanted a kind of settlement that they could live with. Whereas I think the Syrians were more intent on the kind of original plan of destroying Israel still. So what we can see then in the aftermath of 1973, the 1973 war, is that the peace process driven by the Americans is really focused on the Egypt question, much more really than the Syria question. And that yields an agreement in 1975, an interim agreement in which Israel commits in principle to the turn of the, the Sinai Peninsula to Egypt. It then means that in 1978, Jimmy Carter, the American president, invites the the Egyptian leader and the Israeli um, leader to Camp David. And then there is the agreement in, in, in 1979, which means that Israel is recognized by Egypt. There is a normalization of relations between Israel and mm. uh, Egypt. And Israel is handing back the, the Sinai Peninsula that it captured in, in, in 1967 to uh, Egypt. And this is really a big moment in all kinds of ways. Yeah. But one thing I think that's not often sort of drawn out from it is that this involves Israel handing back the oil fields that it acquired in 1967 in Sinai and some that it actually then cultivated um, since and giving them back um, to um, Egypt. And this means that uh, the Americans uh, end up having to make a, an oil commitment to uh, Israel, effectively saying that in the emergency, they will be the guarantor oh, right. of Israel's oil security. And from the Israeli point of view, that that this is a, a big moment because for them, that is quite a sacrifice. I mean, yeah. you know, they've acquired that by territorial ang- aggrandizement, but they've got an energy security vulnerability problem that goes to the heart, as they see it, of Israel's existence. And the reason why that this is such a, a big deal in 1979 is, is because something else is obviously going on in 1979 that changes not just the geopolitics of the Middle East in general, but Israel's position in that and is central to what's going on today. And that is the Iranian revolution. Yeah. Before we get to that, there's a couple of other precedents that are, I think are important from this normalization of relations with Egypt. First of all, it's the this principle of peace for land. So th- this is the idea that, that Israel will sacrifice land that it has won in wars that it has fought since since forty eight, in return for being recognised as a legitimate state, and this would this would be something that we will see through the years to come. And also, you see some precedents for what is going to happen in Gaza in later years, and who knows in the West Bank, where you have Israeli settlers in the Sinai who are then forcibly removed uh, as part of this deal. 
So it's not just sort of empty land with nothing in it that they're giving away. It's important stuff that, as you were saying, Helen, with oil fields, with people living there that have, that had planted orchards and all these kind of things, uh, cultivated the land. And Israelis making a sacrifice as part of its goal, and it succeeds at this point. And I think that that's important psychologically. And then, as you say, it becomes very important as you then get into the 80s because of this seismic moment in history, which is the Iranian revolution. There's just one more thing I think we should put in before we get onto Iran, and I know I got us there a little bit too quickly, <laughs> uh, is that really the end of the 70s, that peace between Israel and Egypt is also the point in which the Cold War, I think, becomes less significant part of this story because it's essentially pushing the Soviet Union out of the, the Middle East in a, mm, in a really yeah. meaningful way. I think you could say perhaps that it's only in 2015 when the Russians militarily yeah. intervene in Syria that we see what was Soviet, now Russian power being projected back in the Middle East. The Soviets have been a really important part of this story in the, well, you could say in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, they're there in the Suez War, they're there in 1967, they're in 1973, because in a way that there's a kind of threat of nuclear war that hangs yeah. over the 73 war. But the peace that successive American administrations, beginning with the Nixon administration, push between Israel and Egypt takes the Soviets largely out of the picture. Yeah, and and in, in Egypt into the kind of Western orbit yeah. to some extent. I mean, we still see that today with Sisi. So, the, and the, and the, getting to the Iranian Revolution, then this is important because it brings to the fore in the Middle East a regime that is committed to that has a effectively genocidal intent or rhetoric towards Israel. So if we're focused on that aspect of why the Iranian revolution is important, it's because it create you you've Israel has managed to deal with its prime enemy in Egypt. It continues to have one with Syria, which is now getting weapons from the Soviet Union. But then you have a regime committed to the destruction of Israel that emerges in Tehran and has oil and it has the capability to start funding groups that are going to cause Israel such problems over the next 40 years. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing that we should bring out here is the fact that Iran had actually had, I wouldn't say good relations necessarily hmm. with Israel through the entirety of the period of when the Shah had been in power, but it, it had at least cooperative relations with Israel over a number of in a number of areas, some of them a bit secretive, perhaps. And crucially, it had been Iran that had been major oil supplier uh, Israel. Obviously, that had become somewhat less important in the period when they controlled the Sinai Peninsula, but still, it was significant. And indeed, the Israelis and Iranians had together built a, a, a land pipeline that effectively sort of, if you like, paralleled the line like of the Suez Canal that could take Iranian oil into the Mediterranean and sold on to European markets. Mm -hmm. And that was obviously really quite important in the period in which the Suez Canal was shut, which was 1967 to 75. It was opened again under the interim peace agreement between Israel and Egypt in, in, um, in 1975. And when Iran basically severs that oil relationship with 
Israel by the Iranian Revolution. So pretty much immediately they boycott, they embargo the sale of oil to Israel. Israel's got a really quite profound energy security problem. And it's coming at the same time when they're giving these oil fields back in the Sinai. And it's then that the Americans basically have to say that they will guarantee in emergency providing oil to Israel. And they also say, we will do everything that we can to get the Egyptians to sell oil to Israel, get the Mexicans to sell oil to Israel. And I think that it's not really possible to see like the just how significant this is without seeing like what a difficult energy security position Israel was in from the start. And in a way, the, the Iran relationship during the Shah period was actually quite good, not fortuitous necessarily, but it, it would not necessarily have been expected from the, from the position of Iran in the Middle East. So you, you can only understand Israel's predicament during this whole period if you think about both the Cold War and its energy sub- mm. needs. And it does it become more dependent then on the states than it was? Well, essentially, they don't want actually have to try and buy American oil. I mean, because this is quite a difficult issue for the Americans, because remember, we're talking like 1979. We're talking yeah. at the point when the Americans themselves have now become the world's largest oil Importer. The last thing that they really need is to be exporting mm-hmm. to Israel. Indeed, the export of oil is actually legally prohibited. They have to change some legislation in order to do that. And that brings actually some quite domestic criticism in the United States. Barry Goldwater, who's still right. in the Senate at that point, basically says, we've got an oil problem. Why are we promising to sell oil to Israel? But it means that Israel is buying a lot of oil in spot markets rather than under long-term contract. Now, that will change later in the 90s, but I, I think it is part of the story about why the Iranian revolution is such a blow. And the other part of for Israel is the fact that the Iranian regime after 1979 is interested in some sense exporting its mm. revolution. And that includes Lebanon. Yeah, I was going to say you have in history, you have these kind of grand I know, rational forces that help us understand things that you've explained there, like oil and Cold War and those kind of things. And then you have the contingency of I don't know, ideology, ideas that, that, that change things. And I don't know if you can understand them entirely rationally. And this seems to be one of those moments. I mean, I think that this is where Israel's military intervention in, in Lebanon in 1982 is really significant because they go with the idea which they succeed in doing in military terms of expelling the Palestine Palestinian Liberation Organization led by PLA, Arafat led right. by Arafat out of, of of Lebanon where they've ended up after they've basically been expelled from Jordan they've ended up in in southern Lebanon um, but what then happens is that they are essentially replaced mm. by this organization, Hezbollah, that the Iranians have encouraged. So this is, I think, a moment where you might say well, that Iran plays a, a part because it encourages this resistance to Israel in southern Lebanon. But at the same time, the Israeli action in southern Lebanon, Lebanon is also encouraging new form of resistance mm-hmm. in southern Lebanon. And this becomes really central, I think, all the way through, well, to now, but if we just find another landing place for the moment, which would be the Israel-Lebanon war, Israel's military intervention in Lebanon in 2006, where it goes in essentially to try to destroy Hezbollah and it isn't able to do so. And I think that by this point we can see, so we're now in like 2006, is that we've got Iran Iran backing Hezbollah, Israel not being able to impose a its military will, and that this is happening in a context in which Iran is actually really important in the region in a way which 
was not really so in the 1980s because it was caught up in the uh, Iran uh, Iraq um, war. And the thing that changed was really the consequences of the American war against Iraq in 2003, because the fallout of it in geopolitical terms was yeah. Iranian ascendancy within the region. The other thing that uh, that, I, that struck me in the reading, actually, about the Iraq war in 2003 and how it, it brought Iran into even more a dominant position was that, again, Israel plays a part in this in that it had struck Iraq, Iraq's nuclear reactor in the 80s, against the wishes of the US at the time, actually. Um, and it had done so uh, for, for similar reasons that Netanyahu wants to um, ha, has said that he would attack uh, Iranian nuclear facilities if they were ever created. Is um, it, it, it that allows the US to go into Iraq more easily than it would have done if if Iraq had managed to build a nuclear power of its own? So, in a sense, during this time, Israel is shuffling the problem from one place uh, to another, but it isn't able to solve it. And the idea of land for peace is it's not really working. You know, they've pulled back from from Lebanon, but the problem is bigger than it ever was. Yeah, I, mean, I think here we need to go back into the 90s, obviously, and talk about the peace, the direct peace process between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And interestingly, given what you've just said, Tom, about the way in which the bigger picture, geopolitical picture joins up with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is really the first Gulf War. Mm. So although the outcome of the second um, Gulf War causes, I think, Israel problems because of Iran's ascendancy, the outcome of the first Gulf War is quite conducive from Israel's point of view because the PLO under Arafat had backed Iraq right. in that and really angered a number of the other Arab states, obviously not least Kuwait itself, given Iraq had invaded mm-hmm. Kuwait. And that, I think, is part of the context in which the, the PLO has to seek peace in the 90s. It's the context for the Oslo Accords, which are the beginning of the formal beginnings anyway of the peace process in which the Israelis are going to basically make another land for peace offer that Arafat would ultimately reject, though for a long time it looked that that's what was going to happen, including when they're on the lawn at the White House and Clinton is there. And I think then what happens first with the withdrawal from Lebanon in 2000, and then, and this is obviously crucial to where we are now, withdrawal from Gaza Mm -hmm. in 2005, which means dismantling Israeli um, settlements there and and basically setting in motion a chain of events that will lead to the walling off of of Gaza, not just actually from Israel, but from Egypt too, are in the aftermath of the failure of the land for peace offer of the 90s. Yeah, so so that offer was, it in essence, a kind of most of the West Bank. I think it's something like ninety percent of of the West Bank that would go to the Palestinian Authority in exchange for recognition of Israel. And this is br- the broad outlines of the deal that Arafat then rejects, in effect. Uh, and so, from that point, what you've actually had is the first intifada leading up to the Oslo Accords. This is the sort of, you know, the, the Palestinian uprising to try and uh, shake off Israeli rule. And you get actually an increase of violence after the Oslo Accords from 94 to 96. More Israelis die in this period than during the intifada. And this is the context, I think, which you then get the rise of the of Netanyahu, Ariel Sharon, 
and you get this, okay, this piece for land as a concept is no longer working. It may have once It's worked. very divisive, I think, within Israel, Israeli, um, Israeli politics. The, um, the well. deal, the Oslo Accords. Well, I was, yes, but also the Gaza withdrawal. Yes. And I think that, that, that if, we, if we think about then like where we are, just because we're going to finish in the mid 2000s in a moment and then move to the present, if we sum up where we've got to like by the mid 2000s, mm. we've got Iran regionally ascendant. We've got Israel not being able to mm. um, defeat Hezbollah really in 2006. We've got Hamas winning the legislative Palestinian elections in 2006 and then taking power in Gaza in 2007 that leads to the Israeli and Egyptian blockade from, mm. of Gaza. And any idea in that sense of land, for a comprehensive land for peace settlement of the kind that had worked with Egypt is not there. And it's in this context, I think, that we've got to start thinking about the present and which we're going to come to after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So we're now going to bring the story right up to the present and where Israel was at the beginning of this year. So to just very quickly recap, we got to 2007. Hamas is in control of Gaza. Fatah is in control of the West Bank under Israeli occupation. Hezbollah is controls much of southern Lebanon. And this idea of peace for land seems to no longer be tenable. And so that is the context in which we can understand the Abraham Accords, which are this attempt by the United States and Israel to normalize relations with the major powers in the Middle East, the primary goal, the prize being normalizing relations with Saudi Arabia. And this would be normalizing relations despite what's going on uh, in the West Bank and Gaza. So it wouldn't be land for peace. It would be just an agreement and then to park the Palestinian issue for the moment. With the Abraham Accords, we need to go back to the last months of the Trump presidency because then this is when the first of them were signed with the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, later included recognition of Israel from Morocco and Sudan. Mm -hmm. so and these are extraordinary moments. These are adding to the groups of the numbers of Arab states that have diplomatic relations with Israel. And I think you can see that, as you said, Tom, that there is this we'll just kind of forget about the Palestinian mm. um, question. And one of the things that's going on, I think, is a desire 
from Israel, the Israeli government, and from a number of the Arab states, particularly I think from the United Arab Emirates, actually to work on creating economic partnerships mm. between some of the Arab states and um, Israel. And one of the things that's really interesting about this here is, is that the Israelis reached an agreement with the United Arab Emirates to use that pipeline that had been used, that had been basically built with the Iranians mm. under the Shah to take Iranian oil into the Mediterranean to sell it into Europe, to use it for United Arab Emirates. So actually, you're seeing a situation in which actually the Israeli government, with some willingness from other Arab states, is trying to turn these questions into economic questions and, and leave the territorial questions and the position of the Palestinians in, in the Gaza and West Bank and say, these questions don't really matter. The problem is that you can't obviously just leave these Palestinian mm. questions. You, you, there was kind of a de facto assumption that Hamas wasn't really going to cause the Israelis any problem in a way that Hamas would rule Gaza for these Israelis. And as long as these Israelis closed it off and that defended themselves when rockets did come over that that not that that was a solution to the problem in a long term sense but that it was a way of dealing with the problem but it relied as we've seen in terms of the terrible attacks on Israel from Hamas on really devastating in the end com complacency yeah and i guess this is where it comes back to iran because iran didn't have any reason to allow this to continue. It didn't have anything to gain. You can see what the UAE had to gain. And now you can see very clearly what Saudi Arabia might have to gain from reaching an accord with Israel in that essentially it was asking for a military guarantee from the United States. So this was the big political story is that Saudi Arabia is seeking a defense agreement with the US. A new one because a new one, because and it's it seems that it wanted something akin to NATO. It wasn't going to get that, but it wanted something of that level. But the United States was very close to this bargain by all the cats, and it would be a new military agreement in return. Saudi Arabia recognizes Israel and restores diplomatic uh, relations. And this would have been a game changer, and obviously the big loser in this would have been Iran, of which controls Hezbollah and Hamas. I mean, there's a lot going on here, I think, that, w that we need to unpack. If we say like, why are the Saudi, why have the Saudis want clearer security guarantees from the Americans? Because after all, is formerly a security guarantee has been there since Roosevelt gave it you know, back in mm -hmm. like 1945, which I, I think that we've um, talked about before is the thing that really freaked the, I mean, more than freaked out the, the Saudis was when their, let's say, Iranian proxies, probably from Yemen, attacked major Saudi oil facilities mm. in September of 2019. And the uh, military, the anti-aircraft missile defense system that the Saudis had bought from the Americans didn't actually work. <laughs> And there was no immediate response from the Americans mm. to that. And this was when Trump was in the White House, who was obviously pursuing a, a more pro-Saudi policy yeah. than either Obama before him or Biden uh, after him. Yet at the same time, the Saudis have been willing to 
bring about some diplomatic rapprochement with Iran. And we can see, and obviously that was partly being pushed by China. It was perhaps being pushed by Iraq uh, as well. And we saw that in the agreement in March of this year that there would be restoration of diplomatic relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran. So if we tell the Saudi story in through this mm. year, it would be trying to go both ways, like trying yeah. to get closer to the United States on security matters, being willing to accommodate around perhaps over a number of issues, partly be because of the incentive to stay closer to China. And now they found that Hamas has had the ability completely to disrupt that. Yeah. Because that way of like, we'll face all ways and we don't want to have to deal with the Palestinian question and we don't want to have to choose has come apart. I think as well, it's important to see the ways though in which the, the Saudi normalization or the, the, the path that seemed to be there for Saudi normalization with Israel, so following what United Arab Emirates had done, was also tied to the question of India mm. and the ways in which India wanted to encourage an economic corridor from India through the Middle East into the Mediterranean, which would include Israel, and might be seen then as a kind of like anti-China move mm -hmm. of trying in some sense to balance off Belt and Road and not let China dominate the trade and transit routes. Uh, across Eurasia. And that probably was problematic from Iran's point of view as well. Problematic for Turkey as well, wasn't it? Did Turkey yeah. say something like there is no corridor to Europe that doesn't run through Turkey? Very much. I mean, we've kind of left Turkey out of this story. Yeah. We could have done a whole, quite a number of these events, I think, as well, would have benefited from perhaps from us talking it through a, um, a Turkey lens, because you could, I think, say that Turkey has been an ascendant regional power in the Middle East, not just because of its position in relation to Syria, but also in Libya. Can we understand um, that through to Syria, that just as Iran rose in power through the interventions in Iraq, that Turkey has risen in power because of the collapse of Syria? Yeah. Well, I think the collapse goes too far because obviously in the end of saying that Assad survived yeah. in, in Syria, I think though that what we can see is that there have been like a number of uh, developments that have been to Turkey's advantage, mm. not without problems from Turkey's point of view. And the survival of Assad was obviously a, a big negative from Turkey's point of view. But I think that what we can begin to see here is that once we recognize Turkey's position in the Middle East, we can see that this ties the geopolitics of the Middle East to the geopolitics of the Eastern mm. Mediterranean. Yeah. And that was in a way already happening because of the gas discoveries in the Eastern Mediterranean. So Israel had actually been quite important in that. Uh, Israel had been forming like corporate partnerships with a number of Eastern Mediterranean countries, including like Cyprus and Greece. Those developments had rather shut Turkey out, yeah. which had made Erdogan very angry. But they'd also had a significant, they'd helped Israel in, a, in an energy security way because of the fact that largely Israel um, could be self-sufficient where gas was concerned as a result of, of, of some of these developments. So Israel's 
energy security had actually improved through the, the 2010s. And we'll come back to another issue about Israel and oil in a moment. But I think that we should try and draw out here the fact that Hamas has acted in the way in which it has in making the attack that it did on Israel and the manner in which it did it is actually really quite a problem for a number of the Arab states. It isn't actually just a problem for Israel. Mm. And it's a problem for Egypt in particular because of the fact that it has the border with Gaza. It doesn't want lots of Palestinian refugees mm. coming out of Gaza into Egypt because the story, the way that the Arab governments understand the Palestinian refugee problem is that when you end up with a lot of Palestinian refugees in your country, it becomes quite destabilizing of your country's politics. That's what happened to Jordan. That's what happened in Lebanon. Well, that's why Jordan didn't want the West Bank yeah. as well, because it, it essentially didn't want the Palestinians there. Uh, because yeah. I think the the ruling dynasty is a minority dynasty, and so it didn't want to become even more of a minority. And the Egyptian regime is had come to power in a coup against the Muslim Brotherhood, which Hamas, that is the the soil in which Hamas has grown from. It is part of the Muslim Brotherhood, as I understand it. So you can see Egypt's dilemma here. What do they do? And you can see it very clearly in what do they do about opening the border at all? Because it's not just Israel that has walled Gaza in, but it's also the Egyptians. And then trying to pull the camera back even further, I mean, we've, we've gone from this crisis in one small part of the world. And you, I saw this map the other day of Gaza and was able to fit into the size of Greater London. You know, it's a very small area. And we've pulled it all the way back now. So you've got the geopolitics of uh, the Mediterranean and the wider Middle East. We've got to India and its competition with China. But it's also happening in Azerbaijan, Armenia, and then obviously looming behind it all is China and the US. Talk me through the Azerbaijan issue, because that also brings in Russia that's acting as this kind of uh, joker on the sidelines that really is benefiting from any distraction for the West to the war that it's waging against Ukraine. So it benefits there. America is facing this dilemma of having to not only can it deal with the China question in Taiwan on one side of the world, as well as dealing with Russia and Ukraine, but can it do that and deal with the Middle East as well? Yeah, just on the on the Azerbaijan question, we need to go back here to Israel's oil security problem because as I've said, that the loss of Iran from their point of view in, in 19, or loss of Iranian oil in 1979 is a huge deal. And whilst they get this security guarantee, oil security guarantee out of the Americans, they understand that actually asking the Americans to deliver on it mm. is actually pretty hard. Now, the original agreement, I think, is for five years and it gets renewed. It gets renewed in 1994 by Clinton administration. It gets renewed by in 2004 by George Bush administration. Interestingly, the Obama administration doesn't actually renew it in like 2014, which comes actually at a time of around the same time anyway of Israel. One of Israel's military interventions in Gaza after rockets have been fired into mm -hmm to Israel. So it, it's not something either that they can use freely at all at times when the United States is the world's largest oil importer. Mm -hmm. And also it becomes something that can't be relied upon 
I think, um, at least from 2014. So really, I think going back to the late 90s, the early 2000s, the country that Israel really turns to for oil is Azerbaijan. To this day, more than half of Israel's oil imports come from Azerbaijan. Now, Azerbaijan is a Shiite Muslim country, but also like Israel has difficult relations with Iran. And what we can see here is that whilst Israel's been importing Azerbaijani oil, Israel has been exporting arms to Azerbaijan. Which is currently in a conflict with its neighbour, Armenia. Yeah, over the Nagorno-Karabakh area that has led to the effective expulsion of displacement of Armenians from there. And that is a, a conflict that has got history too. Maybe we should do an episode about that at, at some point in which has been in part a Russian-Turkey conflict mm, yeah. with Russia having generally backed the Armenians and Turkey, Azerbaijan. But Russia is not really been acting that strongly mm. with for Armenia in the present crisis because it's preoccupation is Ukraine. But what we can see is the ways in which that these different geopolitical like um, fault lines are, are joining up with each other because that joins up the Middle East to Central Asia. And we've already joined up the Middle East to the East Mediterranean and Turkey's position in particular. How core are all of these assets and these national assets that are at stake here? Because the way you're setting it out now, it makes me think of a kind of First World War, you know, dominoes scenario in which you have a trigger and then you see one national, you know, core strategic issue after another, like, like I don't know, dominoes or tripwires or something where they just seem to go one after the other and you see Turkey's got some core interest there that it cannot allow to fall Russia has something, India has something now, China obviously has something, or China may just use this as a dis- while the world is distracted, it moves on Taiwan. How much do you think they are all very vulnerable from just collapsing into each other? There definitely you know, is danger there, but I think it would be wrong to think that China would think all that trouble in the Middle East, mm. that's sort of geopolitically useful for us because it will distract American attention from us and Taiwan. I I, I don't think it it works like that, both because the competition with China is systemic for the US, but also because what has happened is I think quite in the Middle East itself is quite a defeat for China. I mean, remember how much China invested in the diplomatic rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran earlier Mm -hmm. this year is that China needs stability in the Middle East. It doesn't need conflict around the Persian Gulf. Its interest is very much in the free passage of oil through the Persian Gulf. Because it needs to sell goods to Europe, but it needs to get oil from... Yeah. And obviously it's been buying a little bit more oil from Russia since European countries have been less willing, unwilling to buy crude directly from Russia. But I think as I've said before, that 
China doesn't want to be too dependent upon yeah. Russia where oil is concerned. China wants diversity of supply, and then that means the Middle East it really matters um, too. And I think that it has got no interest whatsoever in a crisis of in the Persian Gulf. And mm. in that sense, the fact that the Americans have moved two aircraft carriers into the Mediterranean as a would look like a deterrent for Iran yep. against any direct intervention against Israel, that is probably something that actually is in the in China's interest too, even though that it's been a strong supporter in a number of ways of the Iranian regime. Mm. So that's a kind of reassuring sign that the two big world powers are aligned on this one issue in that they both want stability. They might not agree on what that means or you know what mm -hmm. is required to get there, but they at least have that in their interest, whereas Russia clearly doesn't have the same interest here. What about Europe? Where does Europe stand on this question? Because I, one thing that seems interesting to me in the reading about this is that Europe seems concerned about its own internal stability rather than wider geopolitical security. Or, or, you mean or, individual European countries here? Yeah, exactly. Mm. So I think you've had in France, for example, you've had particular concern because they have the biggest uh, Muslim population in Europe and the biggest Jewish population in Europe. And so they're particularly concerned about their own internal security. I think you've obviously seen something similar playing out in the UK. Like, Do you think that is the principal concern of governments in Europe, or, or are they thinking in terms of energy security, these big geopolitical questions? Well, I think it's both. I don't think it's either or yeah. here. I think that there's no doubt that almost all European governments have an interest in energy security in relation to the Middle East. And indeed, that is now deeper yeah. for another number of countries than it was, say, two years ago. I mean, by that before. Russia's invasion of Ukraine, oh. because the consequence of both the dismantling of the gas pipeline relationship for Germany in particular with Russia as a result of Putin's war, plus the fact that they are not buying Russian oil directly. I mean, Russian oil is still coming back in the form of petroleum products into European um, countries. But is that European countries need to buy more oil and gas from the Middle East? Yeah. Where gas is concerned, this is really is fraught territory, I think, for the European countries because the big gas provider in the Middle East is obviously not Saudi Arabia or indeed United Arab Emirates, it's Qatar. Yeah. And in only, I think it was either last week or the week before, that the French signed a new 27 year contract, long term contract for liquid natural gas from Qatar. And Qatar uh, is as a big supporter of Hamas with Iran. Indeed, you know, quite a bit of the Hamas leadership has, has been hosted in yeah. Qatar. It's where the finances of Hamas tend to. So if we just looked at it in energy security terms, this is it quite an issue for the European country. So if you if you want to go back and make the comparisons we've been doing at times, at least sometimes we have to think perhaps we've forgotten to do it with the nineteen like seventies. There, the the crucial stake, which was 
exercising the energy geopolitical weapon, like who was leading the Arab states mm. and that it was Saudi Arabia mm. because it was the largest of the Arab um, oil producers at the time, is it's Qatar in a way where gas is concerned that has the geopolitical um, weapon. And, and are they using that for ideological reasons? Just go back to this. You know, this idea of history and the contingency of, of events and moments and ideas, ideology, and then the, the grand forces of energy and all that, are they, are they combining or is there a rational strategic reason why Qatar is willing to see Hamas do these kind of things? Well, I think that that's still a, a, it, I think that's still an open question because obviously Qatar hasn't actually used the energy geopolitical weapon yet. It hasn't gone down the road that the Arab states did in, in 19... But we're more exposed to it 73. And it's Well, I think that the European countries were obviously hugely exposed in the 1970s to that, even though the European countries, except for the Netherlands, ran very hard from hard support for Israel in mm -hmm. 1973, precisely because they didn't want to be subject to the Arab OPEC members. Yeah, Britain embargo. didn't, did we? The Britain changed. I mean, Britain had been, in 1967, the Wilson government had been willing to endure the embargo such as it was. Heath's government was very much, and, and the French were the, in a way, the dissenters then under de Gaulle. Really, the European countries, minus the Netherlands, line up with the French position in 1973. And still, despite that fact they're not subject to the embargo, they bear the burden of the price um, shock. So it's a really big blow, I think, energy-wise to West European energy security, the, 19, the 1973 crisis. We're not seeing something like that now. No. And in a way, it's a bit easier because that there are a number of, uh, I mean, for instance, the United States is does export, significant exporter of oil now as well, whereas it was going in the opposite direction in the 70s. Yeah, I guess though the, the US can, now that it's an exporter, can, you know, guarantee Israel or help out in Western Europe, but it can't do, it can't do everything, can it? It just seems, I mean, I think Britain's position in the 70s seems particularly dishonourable when you look at it mm. now. But it just seems extraordinary that we are increasing our vulnerability again to the Middle East and particularly to Qatar or the French have now become... Well, the British have... I mean, it's just in Britain's case, for a longer time, we've had long-term gas contracts with Qatar. Yeah. So it could... It is a weapon that could be turned turned on us. And I just think that is interesting to try and understand the Qataris. I mean, maybe we've done a kind of... Maybe we should have an episode on Qatar because it seems so powerful and important in the region. And we've just had the World Cup there, yet we haven't really emerged with a better understanding of what the long-term goals of the Qataris are. I mean, it, it does seem to me that you know, history in a way is it moves, as we've described it, through all of these crises. And then you get back all the way back to 1948. And in some senses, like the conundrum hasn't changed. Like I was reading about Ben-Gurion and his address uh, with the creation of Israel. And he's saying that the Arab inhabitants of the state of Israel were invited to preserve peace and participate in the upbuilding of the state on the basis of full and equal citizenship. And the problem that's existed from that moment is, it seems to me, is that ensuring that the state of Israel is both Jewish and guarantees the rights of non-Jewish minorities is, is actually quite a, a difficult 
conundrum because of uh, you know population changes and demographics and all of these things. And that is the conundrum that they're facing now. They've managed to deal with multiple things over the years, uh, threats to his very existence from states all the way until now where it's walled off different uh, bits of Gaza and has, has invaded Lebanon. And yet that same conundrum is still there. And you can see that the divides within Israel about how to handle this situation and how it's changed over the years, you can pull at those threads and sort of get, start to understand where you are now. So it's like one thing that really struck me in the reading was going back even to the 20s, you have this divide within uh, Zionism between the leaders of what would become the state of Israel, Ben-Gurion, and the dissenters, the revisionist uh, Zionists, led by uh, Jabotinsky, I think it was. And he becomes he becomes a hero to many on the right of Israeli politics and to particularly important leaders like Begin in the, in the 80s, who uh, launches the attack on the Iraqi nuclear facilities. But uh, Bibi Netanyahu's father, Ben Zion Netanyahu, was an aide to Jabotinsky and is incredibly influential on Netanyahu's thoughts himself. And there is this idea that Jewish history is this sort of cyclical story of or cyclical holocausts in a way that there, there is this constant threat of being wiped out and you have to deal with that through strength and not compromise. And so you get in the early part of Israeli life or its history, you get, they aren't in the ascendancy. It's the other side. It's the founders of the Israeli state who are showing that you are able to make deals to uh, secure Israel. And as that seems to falter, then you get the, you get the rise of the right who are saying, look, you know, that is, that is not working anymore. And the only way to secure yourself is by being aggressive. And we're going to have to hit Iran or we're going to have to uh, deal with Hamas in a certain way. And then you get this cycle and we're in that situation now. And I think you can't quite understand it without thinking of both of the big picture geopolitics and the ideology, the way people think, like to get into the heads of the Qataris and then to get into the heads of, uh, of Hamas and indeed the leaders of Israel and the challenges they face in trying to principally secure their country. Yeah, I mean, I think if we just finish on a note of making the comparison again with the 70s, mm. I think we could say two things is after the Yom Kippur um, war, it turned out that there was a path to peace with Egypt. Mm. It involved the Israelis making sacrifices but I think the biggest one that they made about those oil fields are basically make themselves energy very insecure, mm. particularly given by the time they were actually giving them up of the Iranian um, revolution. The Americans said, we will ultimately, in the last instance, take care of that issue mm. yeah. for you. So the Americans encouraged them down a, a peace path and the Americans offered an ultimate energy security guarantee to them. I think if you then look now, you say, well, there isn't, you know, Hamas and Egypt are not comparable no. with each other. They're just in, in no shape or form. No, Hamas is, yeah, uh, I wants to wipe. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yeah, are they? And I think, though, what is interesting is that the Biden administration has been very emphatic in its support mm. for Israel in this moment, including you know, in, in, increasing American naval presence like in the Mediterranean, which I think looks like saying to Iran, don't think that you're going to get intervening yeah. um, in here. And there, I think there was an, another comparison we might draw because if we go back to like 1979, that was the point in which the Americans and the Carter actually established a military presence in the Persian Gulf. Yeah. substantial like for the first time it ends that's what the carter doctrine is about yeah. uh, it ends with that americans making that move it's not a move i think the americans wanted to make if you go back to the beginning of the decade after the british had left uh, uh, militarily drawn from the middle east withdrawn from east of, of Suez, the americans have basically said okay we're going to rely on the saudis and the iranians to do the security work we're not going there yeah. ourselves end of the decade that they're there if you look at it in terms of then Biden administration, particularly where Obama had wanted to be as the previous Democratic president was to get out of the Middle East. Here we have Biden effectively, albeit via the Mediterranean, right. strengthening an American naval presence in relation to the region. And that is acting as a kind of sort of guarantee of some kind to the um, Israelis. But it's very difficult to see how a peace process with the Palestinians emerges out of it of where we are now in the way in which a peace process with Egypt emerged out of the Yom Kippur war. Yeah, I think, Helen, we're going to have to pick up a, a lot of what we've just discussed, maybe in, in, in individual cases. In future episodes, you talked about Turkey, we talked about Qatar. I mean, I think we're going to have to return to this issue of Israel, Palestine, Israel, Gaza over the next few weeks, perhaps, as, as this drags uh, absolutely. on. Absolutely. And I, I just want to say as well, is we're very aware that there's lots of things that we haven't mm. said that we've gone through as a lot in the last hour or how, however long it is, but we, we're not uh, aspiring to have been comprehensive. There's a lot that we've left out and it's important we recognise that. Yeah. I mean, perhaps listeners could send in some questions about this episode in particular, about this crisis and suggestions of what we should focus in on at a particular moment and how it explains today's uh, situation, because it's just... I mean, it's a, it's 
exactly what this podcast is about, really. It's how history and geopolitics explains what's going on in a way that is enlightening, I think, when so much of the news that we get is just focused on the exact moment, you know, what exactly has happened in southern Israel and Gaza. And that is incredibly important, but just trying to get that wider perspective. Listen, we'll leave it there for this week. We're going to be coming back to so much of this. Thank you for listening. Please do send in those questions. Like it on wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, share it with your friends and family. And as ever, this episode was produced by you and Daughtry.